Thanks for listening to the Roman Circus Podcast, a weekly dive into death-defying discussions of Catholic culture, tradition, and history. I'm Matt Baker, and with me, as always, is head of Secret Vatican Podcast Committee, Zach Mabry. Zach, how are you, my friend? Uh, I'm not allowed to answer that. Okay, that's good. You can tweet us at Roman Circus Pod. I'm at Hey, it's Matt Baker. Zach is at Zach Mabry, Z A C Mabry. Email us podcast at RomanCircusBlog.com. You can find us on iTunes. Rate and review us if you get a chance. We appreciate it. We're also on Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever podcasts are found. We're also on Patreon at patreon.com slash Roman Circus Pod. All right, Zach. Another week, first week of April. We did it. We made it this far. How's the news looking? Well, you know, I, I haven't been watching quite as much news as, as I did back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, what, last week or when was it we talked about the uh, the Democratic Party's decision not to have their debates on Fox News? I think that, yeah, that seems like that was last week. Could have been two weeks ago. Well, it, uh, it's been reported that Senator Bernard Sanders has uh, agreed to do a town hall on Fox News. Amazing. Um, it, it's so interesting that he would even waste his time going on a network that has people who weren't already going to vote for him. Um, yep. it, I, I don't know what he's thinking, trying to reach out to people who might change their minds and support him. Um, so every, yeah. every time we get asked to do a Protestant or a Jewish podcast, we say, no way. We're not, we're not going over there to change hearts and minds. Well, I mean, really, you have to think, like, for, you know, people that are super bought into, um, you know, voting and stuff, mm-hmm. politics is like their religion. So, I mean, it would be like, it would be like that. Like, if, you know, uh, somebody at, first church of what's happening now invites you to explain you know catholicism to them and you were like no we're concerned about your leadership Mm -hmm. it's like go get people i mean again you know not my not my fight here but uh it's it's interesting that it does seem like bernie actually wants to win the election and the democratic party doesn't seem super interested in in doing that side note uh my dad the other day i was talking with him and he said hey what's that the name of the church that zach always uses on the podcast and i said the first church of what's happening now he's like yep that's the one so he likes it he yeah, appreciates there's, that there's that yeah there's that and then super fun rock band church oh yeah that's the other one but i think he was talking the about kind, the first one right they're kind of one and the same interchangeably you know yeah, he, um, he asked me because we got a he he got a uh, like a leaflet in the mail about a uh, church building here in Scottsdale, and it was I'm not going to say what it's called, but I've driven by it, and it's basically just like an office space that they use as a place of church business. So, well, yeah. I mean, you want to like snicker at them, but then the current reality is that a lot of uh, you know, Latin mass parishes have to just make do with whatever space they can, you know, convince the diocese to let them have. And so um, we don't necessarily have the the most beautiful arrangement currently. Um, 
I was just I was just stating a fact. I wasn't uh, snickering at anything, Zach. I've never snickered in my life. Never. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what's going on with, uh, you know, president things. Um, <laughs> Joe Biden is dealing with some scandals, and we will uh, we'll reserve our full conversation about that for our Patreon episode, because sure. it is creepy. Yeah. Um, let's see. What else is going on in the news? Did you see... Hey, did you, wait, did you see the video of the Amazon blimp uh, dropping oh, little yeah. drones? Someone someone said... I saw it on Twitter, and they said it's uh, it looks like a dystopian future, and it really did. It was crazy. It was like a giant blimp that's at Amazon, and then out underneath it, little drones were popping out and flying off. It really did look like some... Like equilibrium, uh, nineteen eighty four, whatever I, you know, whatever they that type of stuff. Well, I mean, it, it was CGI, like that. It, it was it does it doesn't currently exist. Oh, it doesn't. I didn't read. I'd no. never read far enough to know if things are the truth. I just uh, I just read enough to get all amped up about it, and then I post to it on Facebook. Oh, okay, yeah. So, um, right the the video with the Amazon dirigible. Um, I think it's a prototype, but I don't, as far as I know, it doesn't exist okay. yet. I mean, it's, it's kind of like everything these days, like it's creepy, but then also, uh, kind of handy. Sure. Like, does your phone, I mean, cause sore subject between us, but we obviously use different phones. Um, mm-hmm. does your Android phone have the face technology? It does, but I refuse to use it. They can have my thumbprint, but they can't have my face, Zach. Okay, I need to go. I need to talk about. It. We're gonna have to devote a few minutes to this. Sorry about okay. my other plan. Okay, <laughs> so if if you're of the mind, and honestly, I I'm not gonna say this is even remotely crazy, but if it's your thought that these facial facial these facial recognition technologies mm-hmm. on smartphones are, um you know, capturing your likeness for some kind of sinister plot, um, et cetera, et cetera, right? Then why do I take pictures of myself? No. Um, oh, okay. Do you, th- if that, do you really think that by not turning on the feature that you have opted yourself out of this plan, like that they were like, we're going to do this thing to capture everybody's faces, but we're going to just build in the option to exempt yourself from it. And so no, if you it's... turn off this feature, we're not going to steal your face. No, I'm fully aware that they have everything. And my phone is sitting next to me and they're hearing this entire conversation, right? Somewhere... right which is a reminder not to take your phone into the confessional. Um, oh, very good. But back to the thing. Uh, this is like but... a frequent thing that I hear from people is that they basically, they disable every convenient thing that the last few years of technology have brought thinking that they're somehow exempting themselves from having, you know, their privacy invaded and their data leaked everywhere. And the only thing you're accomplishing is skipping out on the convenience. Like you're as equally exposed to all this nonsense as all of us. Yeah. But if, what saying? if I want, what if I want a tiny act of rebellion, Zach, to take some power back and to make these people realize that, you know, they can't completely control me. Yeah. Even though know. it's meaningless. I know it's you know it's something, but the face technology thing is creepy, but it is kind of neat in the sense of you know not having to remember a password and not even having to do because like if your hands or at least with the Apple one, if your 
thumb was wet. You couldn't even get it to recognize your right. thumb. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can hardly... Whereas, I got the new Galaxy, and I can hardly get it to recognize my thumb even in perfect conditions, so... Yeah, it's like in the Galaxy far away. Anyway, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, the... Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the face recognition, I mean, literally, it recognizes me with and without a beard, with and without my sunglasses. Um, it... My brother looks a lot like me, so we tried to test and see if it would recognize him. It doesn't. Like it's uh it's pretty pretty impressive, which also means, you know, pretty dang creepy. It is. Um, if you you know, when I when I have come to Dallas and I see you logging onto your phone just by staring at it, it is pretty impressive. Well, and it's funny cuz like people eventually you kind of realize that you can just look down at it, but until then you see people like lift it up to look dead on and this probably reveals too much about how narcissistic I am, but each time people used to do that, I would be like, are they taking pictures of me? Because, um, <laughs> I mean, it looks like it. Like, it looks like someone's, like, discreetly lifting up their phone to snap a pic. Um, and they're actually just trying to do the the face recognition. Just do the face feature. thing. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that one's creepy. I'm trying to think what else is creepy. Well, I mean, the fact that you can, like... I don't know, have a dream about a product. And then when you get on the internet the next day, you're going to get ads for it. I know they, yeah, that, uh, yeah, they, it, it's so wild. Like on, if I, even if I don't go on Instagram a ton, but just the targeting ads, like I, I look, I was watching, I watched a few clips of WWE on YouTube. And the next thing I know they're hawking socks with wrestlers pictures on them at me on Instagram. Right. Like it's, or if you're if I talk to you about uh I don't know buying lasagna then there's going to be like lasagna ads on Twitter it just always seems to happen that way So okay yeah, fine well, maybe talk I'll about do the face or, thing Well I'm just saying and, and you know listeners correct me if I'm wrong anybody but like do you really think that the features that allow you to disable location services on your phone disable facial recognition etc would actually be there I mean, would, would those actually protect you from somebody stealing all your information and, and if so i mean would they even allow those features i mean you know this quote-unquote they mm-hmm. so that's where I, I tell people i'm like honestly if it if it is as bad as you know some people think it is you might as well just get the convenience from it you know okay sure that's yeah. why when people tell me that like the whole market's going to collapse and don't invest in stocks i'm always like okay here's the deal um if that happens, everybody's just incredibly screwed. So, you know, I'm fine until then. Like, there, there's really not a way to, you know, if uh, if all the major U.S. companies collapse, you know, we're talking Walmart, this kind of stuff, um, it's going to be mass mayhem, and it's really not going to matter how much cash you have at that point. So. <laughs> and if you want to hear more about this... Listen to our Patreon episodes where we will go into depth about, uh, I don't know, all the all the great theories on these things. Okay, then the last thing, okay. I want to know if you know anything about this. So they're, they're doing a new reboot of Batman. I don't know if it's Batman. Anyway, it's the Joker. The Joker, yes. Is that going to be the name of the movie? I think it is just Joker, right? I watched the, I watched the teaser trailer earlier today. Right. So there's been funny things. Like one thing I saw um, talking about it, it was like 1989. What if the Joker was a mobster? 2008. 
What if the Joker was a nihilist? 2016. What if the Joker was a punk? 2019. What if the Joker was that guy in your office who comments beautiful on all your Instagram posts? <laughs> That's good. That's kind of what it's like. Yeah, I, I know that uh, it seems exactly like something fanboys would get upset because Joker never has an origin story, right? So in this one, they like give him an actual kind of origin story. Um, I don't know. You know, it's what even what even is what even is uh the purity of art anymore right like everything is just becoming whatever it wants to be yeah so it's it's the touching story of a you know uh, economically secure um white guy that becomes radicalized so <laughs> all right like that's who we're that's who we need to be sympathetic for in this day and age right Wrong. yes yeah, Joker. Yes, yes. Coming in October. Yeah, next time they've got to get Dwayne the Rock Johnson to play him. I'm fine with the Rock playing anything. Yeah, I mean he'll he'll be busy being president at that point, but he can do it. He'll have time. Yeah. Anything I missed news wise? No, I think that's good. All right, good. See, I'm trying to like still handle the news section without actually really watching any news. Um, yeah, no, you did good. This would also this would be a perfect time for an ad if we had ads. One of these days, I'm going to say something about an ad, and we're actually going to have one. It's going to be glorious. Yeah, if you want to advertise through us, um, Venmo me. Call me. Let's hang mm-hmm. out. Hit him up. All right, so we are going to, this week, continue our discussion of the Vatican. Um, we're, you know, going to touch on this off and on for a few weeks here interrupted with other episodes but today we're going to talk about the roman curia yes the roman curia yeah all right um so the roman curia is basically the church's governing structure correct um it is the the pope and then his curia is what governs the church um it's important to know that, you know, all governing authority within the church resides with the Pope. And so all of the different, you know, organs of administration in the Vatican, whether we're talking about um, the Holy Office Congregation of Doctor of the Faith, the, you know, Congregation for Divine Worship, you know, whatever you've got, Secretariat of State, they all exercise their office um, under the power of the on, on the on behalf of the Pope so mm-hmm. it, it's not a system of checks and balances the the whole thing converges on on one person who holds one office who holds that office um, and so the only real authority that any of the the members of the Curia have whether we're talking about you know the Vatican Secretary of State Cardinal Pietro Perlin or the Congregation of Divine Worship, uh, Cardinal Sarah, these different people, um, their authority to to exercise their function in the church's government is the Pope. Um, they receive their, you know, their sacramental authority, their ability to say mass, absolve sins, you know, yada yada. That comes from holy orders, the sacrament that they've received. But to actually exercise government in the church, that isn't inherent to their ordination, and that's you know kind of entirely dependent on the authority of of the pope. 
So as Americans, a lot of times people don't really understand that. I mean, you can even see it when people get talk about, you know, American situations where, you know, they're like, oh, the it's like the president versus the Justice Department. And it's like, well, well actually, the Justice Department's only authority is the president. They, you know, mm. they're they report to the president, um, you know. So, uh, yeah, it's a situation like that. Um, the the entirety of the church's governing authority resides with one man, the Pope. Correct. I'm just going to chime in correct after you say a bunch of things today. Uh, should we start off with the Secretariat of State? Well, yeah, and just to go high level, basically, in order to carry out the the you know mission of the church and the Holy Father, you basically have this kind of entire governing structure of you know, the Holy See. And with that, there's basically different departments. Um, mm-hmm. With one of them being the Secretariat of State, which is basically, last week we talked about diplomacy, that kind of resides with the Secretariat of State, just like, um, you know, the State Department in the United States is headed up by the Secretary of State. And then you have these various organs called sacred congregations, tribunals, pontifical councils, offices, curia agencies, um, you know, different different things. And we'll kind of talk through some of the main functions of that. And you have to understand, as much as you could, you know, you could run around the entire Vatican City in a fairly short amount of time, um, it still administers a church with 1.3 billion people and, um, you know, is a functioning society, so it has to have a governing body. Um, sure. And, you know, it's in a, as we've said many, many times, it's a sovereign entity, you know, not subject to any higher earthly authorities. Right. So, yeah, so uh, let's talk about the Secretariat of State. Okay, the Secretariat of State is the Vatican's Kentucky Derby winning horse. Okay, sorry, Zach. Ba-doom. Uh Thank you. We should make people and, pay for the jokes like that. Save that for Patreon. Oh, that's true. Yeah, if, if you give us money on Patreon, you'll get all those jokes. Anyway, the most senior of all the Vatican offices, it is... Actually, it was not very influential, but it became more influential under Pope Innocent the Twelfth in sixteen ninety two It was formalized then um actually it, before we keep going it, it's kind of interesting to see when all these when all these offices came about and because you'll see some some came about around the sixteen hundreds, some were a little earlier, some were as recent as like thirty years ago, twenty years ago, ten years ago. Uh just nine years ago, eight years, sorry. Yeah, um, seven, six yesterday. Um Right. This kind so, of the the current structure, like the outline of it, does go back to basically kind of the sixteenth century, mm-hmm. but then there was a pretty huge shake up uh in the nineteen sixties. Right. You know, we wonder what happened. Uh, and then, you know, there's... <laughs> otherwise, it's it's a bit more of a kind of organic thing where, you know, maybe a, a congregation is formed or a department mm-hmm. is absolved or combined or whatever, but there was a big shakeup under Pope St. Paul VI. Right. Um, and you know. I, 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 at the very end, I would like to touch not necessarily on uh, Paul VI himself, but kind of... I have a, I have a few questions I want to posit to you at the end, Zach, and they're not they're not like inflammatory; they're actual questions, and we'll see. Okay. What, we'll talk about it. Um, okay, so the the original position of Secretary of State 
uh, basically I saw it described as a kitchen cabinet of the pontiff and was staffed primarily by his closest relatives, which I thought was pretty amazing. Uh, It also, it's actually, this is where the term nepotism comes from. So they, he, it, let's see, the president of this council took a title and the title was derived from the young cardinal's relation as nephew or cousin to the pontiff. So it, it was just kind of people around him, people close to him and even family members. And it, this is the nepotism, the political practice just came from this, from only hiring those you're cl- hiring or, you know, installing those who you were related to. Okay. Uh, so the reason nepotism stopped was because this whole thing, this whole position kind of grew and became, became more formal and it became much more influential in the life of the papacy that it, that nepotism was just became politically dangerous. They couldn't maintain this, this kitchen cabinet as it were. Uh, and a member of the sacred college now has always held the post of secretary of state. And many of these, but many of these cardinals that were, that have held it were not full members of the clergy. Uh, as late as 1800, Cardinal Consalvi, an Italian minor noble without holy orders in the office of Presbyter, Presburger held the post of secretary of state. And he was the last right, that- cardinal to do so. Yeah, and we'll kind of um, delve into the the sacred college and the way that mm-hmm. cardinals, kind of how that all shakes out. But um, it, it's totally um, historical that there were at times cardinals who were not ordained men. Right, men though. Yeah. So the um, the cardinal secretary of state, it's almost like if the church had. It's like if you combine, if you were comparing it to the United States, you'd almost take like the role of Secretary of State and the role of Vice President and combine them. Um, you know, so you you kind of think of this guy as like Vice Pope, um, but not in the terms of he becomes Pope if the other Pope gets assassinated or dies. Like there's no right, there's no forward momentum. Oh right? yeah, it's no, just, that's correct. It's, yeah, that is correct. Um, and so, yeah, the current uh, Secretary of State is Pietro Perlin. Um, he was appointed by Pope Francis uh, the first year Francis was in office in 2016. Um, he had kind of, you know, risen in the ranks um, from a nuncio, like we talked last week, and then, you know, finally becoming the, the Secretary of State of the, mm-hmm. uh, the Vatican. Um mm-hmm. So, and he was uh, the youngest when he was appointed, or well, the youngest. Sorry, the youngest since um, the reign of Pius the Twelfth. Okay. In general, this is not one where you would just find, um, you know, some guy and take a chance on him. Uh, popes are pretty careful with who they put in this role, and it's usually much more of a like a succession process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean. You know, I don't know a ton about Cardinal Perlin or Cardinal Secretary Perlin. I do know that he is kind of regarded as um, very resourceful. I don't know. I mean, so basically, 
you people think of him as a genius or as an evil genius. Um, okay, sure. Just in the sense of like, um, you know, a lot of people that that don't like Francis will make the comment of, well, you know, Cardinal Perelin is half his age and twice as smart, so at least we have Francis. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't feel that way, but I've, sure. I've heard that said. Um, you know, I try to stay out of that kind of stuff, but uh, it's just what I've heard. Um, you may have seen in the news Cardinal uh, Perlin with the the China deal, the Vatican agreement with China um, that legalized Catholicism in mainland China, right? Um, which was you know essentially orchestrated by Cardinal Perlin. Okay, so sometimes the sometimes the worry about this position is that it'll have too much influence over the Pope, or that maybe they will. I don't know if they can actually. Oh yeah, I mean they just are privy in. to so much information right. that the Pope doesn't. You know, there's not really a way for the Pope. Like, who do they turn to? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you think about the duties of the 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 Pontiff um, and every everything he has to do, he doesn't. You know, have time to like fact check his Secretary of State. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this position has a lot of influence and. You know, you as far as things go, this is someone you you want kind of your best in it, and so, you know, we should pray for uh for this position. Okay, uh, the Secretary of State is divided into two sections: the section for general affairs, which has responsibility over the daily life of the Curia, governing appointments and coordinating intercurial meetings, and the section for relations with states which has responsibility for the relations with civil governments and political authorities. So basically like the, the inner workings of the church and the outer reachings of the church, basically that's how I read that. Yes. I kind of think of it like in the, uh, you know, the United States with the state department and then we have like the department of the interior. Okay. Um, but yeah, so that general affairs, the other thing that they do that you may have heard of is they they're kind of uh, coordinate the um, the act of apostolic studies. The acta is kind of the nickname for it. Mm-hmm. And basically that's sort of the official record of what the Pope has his magisterium. Um, now, we have sort of conflated the word magisterium with infallible and they're, they're two entirely separate concepts. Everything um, officially put forth by the Pope is part of his magisterium okay um, th- that doesn't make it infallible unreformable dogma it means that you know this is the the teaching of you know pope whatever whatever and mm. so uh i think after Amoris Laetitia, uh a a letter that pope francis sent to a group of bishop was published in the acta and you know that gave it a much more official Status because instead of just being a private letter to those bishops, it became you know an official, you know official thing, letter uh, put forth by the Pope into his magisterium. That doesn't change the doctrinal status of it. It doesn't make it infallible, but it does raise it to a level that kind of tells you the Pope's prerogative, and it, it's a big deal. It's kind of his, you know, like I think the equivalent for Donald Trump would be like Trump's uh, Twitter timeline. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. I like that. That's the equivalent. Well, it's like a, you know, I don't know where all that's. I think there is actually this presidential archive. Cause apparently there's like 
in it, there's a you know recorded phone call of LBJ complaining about how his pants are tailored. Um, and so and oh yeah, you know, they I would say all that stuff. Yeah, right. Um, you can't. It's a slippery slope. Start if you start deleting stuff and start getting rid of stuff. So you kind of got to keep it all. Right. And so yeah, that's kind of the inside part, and then the outside, the the section for the relations with states. Basically, you know, it would correlate with the United States Department of State or, like in Britain, the uh, the Foreign Office. Mm-hmm. Right, which makes sense because if this is the thing, this this is the the offices right under the Pope, then they will need to report to the Pope on all these things. So they kind of have to have branches that extend into them. They can't. It can't just be the Secretary of State just kind of like. It's like it like they can't for example Pope Francis can't say so Secretary of State what's in the news kind of like how I start this podcast they would have to have a more defined clear thing of what's in the news not that the way we do it isn't perfect and amazing right no i would guess that you know there's a um more or less a daily briefing of sorts that the Holy Father receives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the people in charge of what goes into that briefing have a lot of power at the end of the day. Um, right. The, po- the Pope's personal secretaries are part of uh, this department, too. Personal secretary, okay. you don't hear that as often. It's basically like a personal assistant. Like you're... Right. Um, you know, they help you with matters that are a bit more private, but you know, or ultimately when you're in a role, like being the Pope 24 seven is you're, you know, you're, you're always at work. And so they kind of help you with more of your, you know, your personal things, you know, you need new vestments, you need alteration, you know, whatever it is. Are these, um, I, I, I don't know. So I'm asking, is this, are these like priests or are these also Cardinals or are these kind of like, are they, these ordained priests assigned specifically to this? Do you have any idea about that? That is a good question. I don't actually know. Um, I I was thinking because I I want to say it was one of Benedict's personal secretaries was behind some of the Vatileaks stuff. Oh, um, and was yeah, a okay. priest. I'm not sure. Um, you know, it's important to understand that kind of um, while the governing authority of the church does come from the Pope, um, you know, an aspect of holy orders is kind of governing so it would make sense that for the most part most of the posts at the vatican would be filled by people who are ordained because I mean, sure. that's kind of what the sacrament is for right um so yeah so that's kind of your secretary of state and yeah that's that's like the you know underneath the pope himself that's kind of your your number two okay all right should we move on to some of the congregations yes the Doctrine of Faith. Yeah, the this, Doctrine of the Faith. So this used to be called the Holy Office of the Inquisition, and then mm-hmm. just the Holy Office, and then finally uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. We should bring back the Holy Office of the Inquisition. That's that's my opinion. We should call it that. I don't know. Okay. I'm down. <laughs> Thank you. 
That's what that's what this little piece here. It says the latter title, the holy the, referencing the holy office of the Inquisition, resounds negatively in the mind of the faithful and at the mind of the world at large today. So that's that's basically why they changed it because it has a negative connotation. Right. A lot of people have been exposed to uh, Spanish revolutionary propaganda about what the Inquisition was, and they imagine it to be, you know. As bad as, like, the Protestants in England, you know, murdering everybody. Um, Right. When, you know, in reality, it was, you know, it was a a very well-structured system. Um, You know, in the cases where they they may have put people to death, some of the estimates say it was maybe 12 people over a period of 300 years. Yeah, I I was going to say it's, I've I've seen something around that. Right, like, more people are going to die at Walmart today than that. Like, so, you know, I mean, it's not... Is there there a rash of deaths at walmart that i yeah oh i don't know okay well we'll effort that pope innocent iii founded the congregation for the doctrine of faith in the 13th century as a safeguard against the heretical movements common to that era and it was restructured 200 years later under paul iii placing it under the guardianship of a body of first three and then five cardinals whose responsibility it was to root out and eradicate heresy so yeah, this is this would make sense why this is a pretty important thing and would be one of the the higher the higher uh, congregations on the list because it's really yes. is, it's so, really just you know, pr- pr- you know protecting the actual faith, protecting the the dogmas and the beliefs of the faithful. So what are you going to say? Well, um, before he was Pope Benedict, um, Cardinal Ratzinger was the head of the. Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, and was sort of viewed as uh, John Paul II's, you know, right-hand man or the Pope's theologian, or et cetera. So while the, the you know, the Secretary of State is there for more of a, a governing, administrative, you know, international role, the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith is there for, you know, matters of, of doctrine, theology, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when the Pope issues an encyclical, it kind of goes through them. Um, and you know, dioceses, bishops, et cetera, can, you know, send, you know, petitions about, you know, serious matters of theology and the the CDF will respond. Um, you can find a lot of those responses if you uh, read Denzinger's, what it's called, but basically just collections of church documents. Right. Um, I believe traditionally all the questions are supposed to be posed as yes and no. So you have to be specific enough that, you know, you get a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down to whatever you're, you know, proposing to the CDF. I like that. That makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> it, it would it would be a lot more efficient and a lot better for lack of confusion if it was just yes or no answers, right? And instead of like yes, but also at the same time, you have to remember so and so and this and that. So if you're gonna if you're gonna be in charge of actually stomping out heresies and protecting the dogmas of the faith you would have to be as clearly defined as possible yes um and you know it has kind of changed up in more recent years to you know before even though they weren't calling it inquisition anymore i mean their job was basically it's like you kind of have to think um you know in a it's like a game of whack-a-mole, okay? Basically, the bishops that, you know, pop up and are, you know, 
things are you know there's heresy or whatever the uh the holy father's the player and the cdf is the hammer and so basically Mm -hmm. the hammer would get brought down um after the second vatican council they kind of wanted to make it you know friendlier more positive you know encouraging truth and and stuff um but really when cardinal ratzinger later pope benedict was the head of it he did kind of have the nickname uh god's rottweiler and um amazing you you can even on ewtn there's even i remember an an episode of mother angelica where she's like well wait till father or wait till uh, cardinal ratzinger hears about this about something the u.s bishops were doing and how you know she wasn't she wasn't too concerned because he was going to uh she knew he would take care of it that's pretty awesome yeah so yeah that's the congregation for the doctrine of the faith um and oh it, it also it reports to the secretary of state so when even though you know people look at benedict as being uh, john paul's right hand man ultimately his superior was the secretary of state while he was serving jp2 all right the next one is i like the name and it makes sense it's it kind of isn't it feels like an old school name but the next one is oriental churches and Basically, this is dealing with the faithful who live in predominantly Eastern Rite locations. And when I when we were going over this, and I, I read about this, I didn't even think about how this would need to be a thing, but it totally makes sense, right? Like right. It, 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 if we consider like if we consider the the Latin Rite, like the the Western Church, and you know we know all the Byzantine and the Eastern Rites it would make sense that there would have to be something that holds the two together to make sure that they're always, you know, in lockstep and that neither party is, you know, painting outside the lines wildly. Right. And, you know, I don't know that it would, this structure, I don't know that it would be like this were it not for the great um, schism because there would be just a much larger, you know, presence in the church of, of the Eastern churches and the Eastern rites. But after, right. you know, all of those bishops skipped town, the situation mm-hmm. now, while there are these beautiful Eastern rite churches, they go back all the way to the times of the apostles. Um, and they're, you know, they're, they are Catholic, you know, point blank. I mean, they're, they're as Catholic as, uh, you know, any Absolutely. Catholic, you know, sure. And, but they are, you know, they have a unique history and they're just a very small number wise compared to the, Latin right, and so they they do kind of need somebody there to kind of make sure that they don't get just kind of brushed away and and just collapsed into the the Latin right, and kind of that you know that can be maintained, and you know the traditions that the apostles left with the Eastern churches can be passed on, mm-hmm. um, and so that's where you know the Eastern right bishops flow through this group um, because it, it's just a different situation and you know that is respected and you kind of have to you know to the church is very adamant about maintaining these types of traditions and so you know this office being theirs is is, uh kind of demonstrates that can i read a quote from pope benedict the 15th let's hear it he he in 1917 he granted autonomy to the congregation by removing the christians of the orient from under the curia governance of the congregation for the proper propagation of the faith. And he 
he affirmed the universality of this by saying about the church, it is neither Latin nor Greek nor Slav but Catholic. We repeat beloved St. Paul when we affirm herein there is not Gentile and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian and Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is all and in all. So that is uh, that is his quote about that. Yes. Um, and, you know, there's always been an interesting relationship between the Pope and the Eastern churches because, you know, a lot of them live in either predominantly Muslim countries or for the most part, or actually in almost every circumstance, Eastern Catholics are religious minorities um, because usually there's a corresponding Orthodox church that is the majority. Um, and basically the, the Pope has always sort of Rome has been kind of the protector of Eastern Catholics since, you know, that's who they kind of looked to, to mm. help them. Cause they were, you know, they're minorities wherever you find them. Right. Boom. But, um, yes, no, it's great. And that was, you know, there were people that proposed that, you know, the traditional Latin mass should have a structure like this, where it's like totally left alone and has its own people there. And, you know, Pope Benedict points out that that just isn't, that would just be, completely novel to have a separate structure where you know you have this i don't know what you'd call it like congregation for the traddy land churches that proposes (laughs) you know special latin mass bishops and there really just doesn't work like that a a Um, a very modest congregation for the traddest of them all right yeah i mean that's because that's not creating a division and it it isn't you know right it's 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 under the umbrella of the Latin right, like the Western church, right? So it's not like it's like we have the Western church, the Eastern church, and then the Northern church and the Southern church, right? Like it's right. not like the Latin mass falls under one of those. So yeah, it'd be, I don't know. Let's not, let's not, uh, you know, let's not get crazy here, people. Yes. Um, and so, you know, one thing that there is in general, uh, it's pretty uncontested, widely held that the Eastern tradition should be maintained. So there were periods of time where, especially like in America, where the Latin bishops would want to try to Latinize the, um, you know, the Eastern Catholics who were there and kind of sync it all up. Um, Mm -hmm. And that part was confusing because, you know, in America, you did have situations where you had, you know, Italian priests and parishes and, you know, Irish you did have kind of a fragmented church that, you know, gradually sort of grew together um, because of the migration and settling patterns. Right. Um, But ultimately the, you know, they didn't, they did not successfully, you know, pull the East into that. And now it's, you know, important to carefully preserve those ancient traditions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Divine worship and the discipline of the sacraments. Yes. These are these were two separate curia departments, the congregation for divine worship and the discipline of the sacraments. But they were united into one senior congregation by Pope John Paul II in 1988 after years of merging together and then again splitting apart. Like 
like a classic high school relationship. Am I right, Zach? They just can't get enough of each other until they're sick of each other, and then they split apart, and then they come back together again. And John Paul II said, enough of this silly business. You're now one. Right. <laughs> um, and, yeah, it was briefly redivided and then put back together, like you said. So this is this is the liturgical life of the church and uh, how, how it foster its growth and to assure orthodoxy with Rome, which, again, is very important. You want to make sure that all the all the rites and all the churches are obviously treating the sacraments with the way they should and treating the worship and treating the the mass as it should. Uh, So you got to have the committee for it. Right. Um, And, you know, an interesting point. Um, There used to be really just until, I don't even know, unless maybe a couple months ago, a couple weeks um, what was called the Ecclesia Day Commission, which kind of handled, they were sort of the um, the Vatican group that oversaw all of the various, uh, what were called, I don't know what we're going to call them now, but the Ecclesia Day communities, which would be things like um, the Fraternity of St. Peter, the Institute of Christ the King, um, that basically uh, maintain and, and carry forth the the ancient rites, the Latin Mass. Um mm-hmm. This group was not underneath the divine worship and discipline of the sacraments. It was actually underneath the uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Um, huh, okay. Which is interesting. It's since been dissolved, but, um, you know, I don't know why that was. I don't know if it was because Cardinal Ratzinger was seen to be friendly with the the trads, and so they put it in his department, and that's just how it stayed. Um, but it... it it essentially reflects the fact that there's um that basically doctrine is the the focus of um the church's basically the way the church oversees trad groups is they want to keep that within doctrine um and i don't know exactly where i was going with that but it, it, it just points out that that's well, yeah, the dialogue you, you, they want to have. They, right. They don't want it it's, to be looked at as just a... Are you, say, are, you, are you trying to say, like, it, it's, it's important that even though the, like the Latin Mass doesn't look like the, the new Mass, the Mass that's used, that is celebrated uh, universally, right, that it, uh, they want to make sure that it's in line, that it, they, that it is still underneath the, the umbrella and it, is doing everything it needs to do. And I guess right. to They're some extent, saying, it would, have... Go ahead. I would, I was going to say, and to some extent that falls with the, the new mass, the new, right. Like it, they want to make sure that just because it's the one that's overwhelming majority used in every church, they still need to make sure that it is correctly done. Right. So. Right. And so, you know, I think it's kind of a, you know, have, you can have your Latin mass, um, but we want to make sure that you're, uh, you know, not heretics, and so it gets put under the doctrine, the uh, doctrine office. Yeah, it sounds reasonable to me. I don't want anyone to be a heretic. We did two episodes on that. We don't need to revisit that. People should know by now, right? Um, and it is Cardinal Seurat who mm. is the um, 
the prefect of the congregation of, for divine worship and the discipline of the sacraments. Um, and he is obviously very popular um, among, I don't know if this is worldwide, but I know that among American Catholics who are, you know, traditional, conservative, um, they really like him. But because uh, he's so profound in the things that he writes and says, he, he's not, he has, he's much less controversial than, say, you know, Cardinal Burke, basically. Like, a lot of people kind of view Cardinal Burke as, you know, Francis's opposition and all that. A lot of people who maybe don't agree with all of his um, aesthetic views or some of the more traditional stuff appreciate Cardinal Seurat. Um, and he's just not really regarded as being incredibly controversial. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. All right. Causes of Saints. So we... Uh, you know, to promote ourselves a bit, we did a episode about the canonization of a saint. We did it maybe this time last year. I remember it kind of being one of our first ones, but I don't know. Everything runs together. Uh, so I don't know. We won't actually go over the actual canonization process, but there needs to be an, there needs to be a, an office and needs to be a congregation for that. And it is labeled as the most mysterious of the offices of the Roman Curiae. The Congregation for the Causes of Saints. It deals with the miracles. And it basically, it's the, it's the one where the, the whole process goes through. Yes. There's actually, um, we, we should do an episode where we just read it almost. There is, uh, you can find almost like the assessment that they do when they're, you know, starting to go down the path of canonizing somebody. Right. To sort of determine if they had heroic virtue. And so, you know, I mean, literally speaking, it's a checklist for how to become a saint. So it's something we should probably know about. Heroic virtue, Zach. Whomst among Heroic us. Heroic virtue. Whomst amongst us. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm going to just have to be martyred. Um, I, though that is, okay, but, so that is one thing that it does say in here that it uh, it does refresh the idea that martyrs do not need miracles. If they are martyred for the faith, they are passed right through. And uh, right, well, they, that I mean, there's still a... scrutiny. Obviously, they still have to. It is still is scrutinized. And it is the investigation? It's just an investigation on the martyr's sanctity and circumstance. So it's not like if you you hear about Joe down the road says he's Catholic and gets shot, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's a martyr, right? So they they still have this. They still have this congregation to come to the conclusion whether it was a just martyring right yeah I mean they still have to study it mm-hmm. I was going inter- to I interrupted you you have something you were going to say um, I, I, mean, I don't think so I think I was you know just rolling with it <laughs> sweet let's roll with it right on to the next one uh, the next one is... Congregation for the Bishops? Congregation for the Bishops, that's the one. Okay, so this one, um, basically, you know, they're in charge of, of helping the... So all bishops are appointed by the Holy Father. Um, and they kind of assist him in doing that because obviously he doesn't know... You know, if Pope Francis is going to, you know, appoint a new bishop of, what's your diocese? Phoenix. Phoenix. Um, you know, he doesn't know 
he's not going to make a visit to parishes around Phoenix and see which one of the priests, you know, shows the most promise. He's mm-hmm. going to have to, um, you know, be advised and take advice on that. And it's ultimately his decision and his authority. Um, but, you know, it's a worldwide church. He's got to take advice for that. Right. So he, they, they basically, they come up with a list of three names and they propose these three names to the Pope. Now the Pope is not obligated to use one of these three names. He can, he can appoint someone else if he wants, correct? But they kind of give him, they just give him like a, a starter list basically. Yes. Yeah. I mean, again, it's one of those things where, you know, the people who make that list do have a certain amount of power um, for the sake of the fact that, you know, I don't know how else you would know, you know, if there was like, you know, a perfect candidate and an evil candidate, I don't really know how anybody except the congregation for the bishops could get that information to, to the Pope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first big kind of shakeups uh, when Francis became Pope was involving this group, the congregation uh, for the bishops. Um, mm-hmm. At the time, Cardinal Burke was, you know, the American on the Congregation for the Bishops, and he had considerable say over which men became bishops in American dioceses and, you know, who became bishops all over the world um, sure. before the end of the Pope's first year. In 2013, he was replaced with Cardinal Worrell. Um, Cardinal Worrell uh, from the Archdiocese of Washington, um, successor mm-hmm. to Cardinal McCarrick, or well, now Mr. McCarrick. Right. So, yeah, that one made the news. You maybe remember it. Maybe mm-hmm. not. Yeah, I remember it. All right. Next one. Let's hear it. The next one we got is, as I frantically go back to where I left off, evangelization of peoples. The congregation yeah. for the evangelization of peoples is one of the more important of the Curie offices and one of its most historic. This might be controversial, Zach, but let's hear this, it. <laughs> well, it's not because I'm going to say something controversial, but just stating a fact. Uh, this congregation was one of the wealthier of the Curia offices being endowed by Catholics worldwide. Its finances were independent of the Holy See's budget. So Ooh. I only say that I only say that it's controversial sometimes because people like to say stupid things about the church having money and how silly that is. Right. Um, um, one thing that's also interesting about the Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples is that um, it used to basically be called, you know, the Propaganda Fide. Right. Um, and the word propaganda like earned its negative connotation in the thirties. I mean, you would, before that there was no such thing as public relations or like all of it was just called propaganda. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, basically Germany and all that stuff is one of the things that really sapped, uh, made that term kind of exclusively associated with bad sketchy business. Yeah. Yeah. 
The direct activities of this congregation's competence include the establishment of societies and organizations bringing aid and missionary work to the people, the promotion and encouragement of mission vocations to the priesthood and religious life, the erection of Episcopal jurisdictions and ordinary authority, the nomination of of mission territory bishops, the assignment of missionaries in their work, and the finance of mission works. The Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples has jurisdiction on every continent, including North America. The Diocese of Fairbanks, Alaska, one of the largest ecclesiastical territories, is still designated a mission diocese and therefore falls under the jurisdiction of the Cardinal Prefect for this congregation. So, there's some uh, yes, and so that's quick hitters about that. When you have, yeah, like when you have kind of a pre-diocese. That's where they'll sort of fall under, under there. A pre-diocese, you say? Yeah, like before something becomes, you know, officially, you know, a stable diocese, it's based, it's like a missionary territory type situation. Gotcha. Okay. So like the all United right. States currently has all of its diocese clearly etched out, but at one point it was really just a missionary, you know, project. Right. Or like if before... Arizona was established and like Phoenix was established the people here could have been part of the Gallup New Mexico diocese or something like that or like a pre not part of it but like not necessarily of their own diocese I don't know maybe I I just said that wrong but that's okay (laughs) thank you (laughs) anything else before we move on to the next one um no yeah evangelization evangelization of peoples I mean it seems pretty you know, straightforward, and it was very important to JP too. Obviously, who promulgated the, uh, you know, promotes the the new evangelization. Mm-hmm. The congregation for the clergy. All right, that's the next one. This was yes. uh, until so, 1967 known as the Congregation for the Council. Right, and so they this basically came from the Council of Trent, and they were kind of in charge of implementing the Council of Trent, and then you know once that settled down. Their role was and continues to be basically managing the situation of the clergy at large, so all the priests and um, and whatnot, um, financial matters, governing, you know, that kind of thing. Um, the big thing with them is that uh, at one point, the the sex abuse scandals were overseen by the congregation for the clergy because. You know, it was kind of seen as like a clergy discipline issue. Right. Um, this was moved to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, um, which, again, is in line with the the idea which has been, you know, put forth by various bishops, including Pope Francis, that the abuse crisis is a spiritual crisis. Um, and I think there were other reasons why they put it under the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, but it basically... The process for you know hunting down and and capturing the bad guys improved drastically when it mm-hmm. moved to the CDF, right? Um, and there you know there were rumors it was going to get moved back, and people were just devastated when they when they heard that. Devastated. Yes. <laughs> Institute Weeping in the streets. Yeah. I, think, I think Michael Brendan Doherty wrote a whole article about, you know, this happens, this is a terrible move. So, I mean, people did feel strongly about the rumors that uh, sex abuse was going to get moved back to uh, Congregation for the Clergy. Mm-hmm. 
we will uh should we have him on you want to call him up right now and we'll have him on for a hour-long talk about that yeah mbd institutes of consecrated life and societies of apostolic life predating both the congregation for bishops and the congregation for the causes of saints by two years each uh they said the names in Italian. I'm not going to read them, but these the Institutes for Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life was founded in 1586 by Sixtus V with competence over the growing number of religious institutes and societies. Um, so this deals this, this deals with the uh, rules of would it be like the non-ordained but like those those consecrated adults that are not married but not ordained well i mean really it'd be like the the all the religious institutes so the you know religious orders franciscans and all of them okay all right that fall under like this umbrella yeah or okay yeah because, um, yeah, they were called the Congregation for Religious, and then they kind of have the, you know, uh, under JP2 it became the full name, the Congregation for the Institute of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life. Um, and so I think the idea there is to sort of demonstrate the, you know, how how many options there are under that umbrella as far as, you know, vocations within the church. You know, it's not just religious. There's, you know... Like you said, there's consecrated life. You know, you can have consecrated lay people that are, um, you know, hermits, whatever it is, that are outside of a like a religious order, like the Carmelites. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, that's that. Uh, the final one we're going to talk about today: Catholic education. Yeah, this is the this is the newest of the major offices that was created by Pope Benedict the 15th in 1915 prior to that the important work concerning education specifically catholic education in seminaries and universities came under the competency of various various offices in the curia and from time to time special commissions of cardinals as well uh you know, it, but it's important to make sure that these things are going correctly and that they're building these things up. So, uh, they there was a big boom in the growth of number of universities and seminaries. So this basically demanded that this congregation be created, right, to handle the handle the boom of of all these new schools. Yes. So it was founded under the title of Congregation of Seminaries and Universities, and it held that title for 52 years until Paul VI changed it to the Congregation for Catholic Education. Uh, And then Pope John Paul II qualified it in 1988, adding in parentheses for seminaries and institutes of study. uh, And so, yeah, what that points to is that a lot of their work, it's not like they're the, the church's worldwide school board um you know a big thing that they're responsible for is seminaries all over the world and then um education of of you know people who've already ordained you know the clergy religious and stuff who have already you know completed their seminary training but need to continue um you know learning the faith especially if new things are promulgated and 
Um, so that's where you would need, you know, this body. And then there is a section that kind of has your pre-university preparation. Mm-hmm. That's it, Zach. Anything else you want to say on this? I have, we're, okay, so we're running slightly long, but I, I promised that I had some questions in the beginning, and I wanted to not forget about those. All right, yeah, let's, uh, let's do it. Nothing else on these. I mean, these are the congregations, and so um, if you're taking notes for the quiz, um, mm-hmm. just as a quick review, today, besides the Pope, we talked about the Secretary of State and then the sacred congregations, which are the Doctrine of Faith, Oriental Churches, Divine Worship and Discipline of the Sacraments, Causes of Saints, Bishops, Evangelization of the Peoples, Clergy, Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life, and Catholic Education. Wow, that's a whole bunch. Kaboom. Okay, so uh, one thing that kind of struck me when I was reading through this, and Uh again, I don't say this to inflame or to be controversial, but okay, so how, how do we deal with the idea that a lot of this restructuring has happened within the past 50 years, right? So like we, in, in terms of the church being a governing body, like we we're we're put all our faith into the church and we accept what it teaches. So we also accept these congregations, right? So they have these, but if they're, if they're going to be tinkered with and they're going to be changed here and there, uh, how, how do we not expect that to kind of like ruffle people up and kind of make people look, feel like that's kind of diminishing their authority? You know what I'm trying to say? Um, yeah, I, I'm not saying I agree or I think that I'm just saying like, if why, why haven't, why couldn't these councils or why can these congregations remain the same for hundreds of years? And I think people red flags kind of go up when people, they say things like to deal with the church of our time, knowing that the church is a timeless body. Right. Right. Well, you know, there's, I think maybe two points I make there. One, there was this just kind of unexplainable fascination um, starting in the 60s with renaming things. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Holy Office becomes a congregation for the doctrine of the faith. The, um, you know, congregation for the clergy becomes, or congregation for the council becomes congregation for the clergy. But then even like, you know, the sacrament of extreme unction becomes anointing of the sick. It was a, a strange time you know i mean people that was the decade people were putting up you know pink christmas trees and all that kind of stuff so i mean that's just kind of a weird situation that you know it just is what it is um as far as like kind of you know moving around the departments and themselves you know it it is a matter that you know the pope will need to be prudent on um Mm because you know obviously all the authority does reside with him um you know, but, you know, in order for the church to be administered, you kind of want to be able to set precedents. You want to have, you know, practices that can be followed, you know, processes. I mean, it's a government, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but that said, as a government, it really does. I mean, you know, most of these have to do with the administration of the church and those needs will change, you know, over time. I mean, they obviously they changed, especially when the church had most of its territory removed. Um, and then as the church has spread to further parts of the world, um, you know, as the, you know, as international relations have changed, I mean, realistically, it is kind of the, the curia that, 
you know, manage the earthly aspect of running the church. And, and those needs do change with time. Mm-hmm. Um, but right, as you, far know, as you like... do want to have institutions that are stable. And it does, people start to realize, you know, oh, okay, if, you know, if the Pope goes and, you know, closes a bunch of congregations or, you know, if as soon as a new Pope comes in, he, you know, fires just everybody at the head of the congregations and appoints all new people. I mean, that does cause instability. Mm -hmm. It sets a precedent for the next Pope to do that. And then the whole thing does start to crumble. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of what I thought. Like it, there are changing, like there are different needs that I guess every generation has to deal with. Right. So the church has to be constantly not updating, but kind of keeping up with the trends of like, whether it's like smut on the internet or, you know, like television, things like that, right? Right. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's got to govern, you know, the, the church has to be governed and that's where this stuff kind of comes into play. And those needs do change with the times. So obviously doctrine doesn't change and, you know, even most disciplines don't change and you, you shouldn't change things just for the sake of changing them, which would be kind of my critique of all the name changes in the 60s. Um, you know, but it's like when some of these congregations are combined it, it you know it could easily be the the observation that you know there are a lot of overlaps here and you know it's difficult to have this this process you know broken up into multiple congregations let's bring together discipline of the sacraments with divine worship i mean obviously those are closely linked um mm-hmm. and having them under one prefect you know makes a lot of sense here, here. Okay, that was. And usually, I think that... whenever anybody says they're going to reform this kind of stuff, like they usually end up somehow expanding it. Um, it it's similar to what you see, you know, in the United States with, you know, oh, they're going to make the government more efficient. That was like George Bush's big thing, and then he expanded it and created the Department of Homeland Security. Right. Um, and you know, Trump was going to simplify the tax code, and it, now it's even longer. You know, normally these things don't get. Uh, smaller um but you know sometimes they do kind of slim down certain things when it's not needed um you know i mean my guess is that the press office has changed dramatically um now that we're in kind of the era of the 36 hour news cycle Mm -hmm. um you know internet television you know at one point it was probably a lot of people who knew how to use typewriters and you know a radio team now you've got you know the whole the whole shebang the whole shebang. And you can trust him when he talks about the tax code because he is an accountant. I am. So, so there's that. That was actually the only the real question, the only real question I had. Uh, we're getting long, so I'll run through a saint of the week really fast. Let's hear it. Saint Isidore, bishop, confessor, and doctor of the church. Feast day, April 4th. He is, is some of the attributes attributed to him are bees bishop holding a pen while surrounded by a swarm of bees bishop standing near a beehive old bishop with a prince at his feet he is the patron of the internet which means he's the patron saint of twitter and facebook uh he's a patron of computer users computer technicians programmers and students he uh was pope St. Pope John Paul II declared him the patron saint of the internet in 1997. Uh, he's Amazing. often 
he's referred to as the last scholar of the ancient world and is widely in the mm-hmm. Catholic Church declared, considered the last of the church fathers. Um, he was the bishop of Seville in Spain. Is that how you pronounce that word in Spain, Zach? Seville. Seville. Yeah. Yep. And so. upon, upon his elevation to the episcopate, he immediately constituted himself as a protector of monks, which is pretty great. So he uh, he was looking out for he was looking out for the monks, which I'm glad someone was at that Excellent. time. He died yes, before we had the congregation for the uh, what was what oh, I'm losing the, the long name congregation for the religious the Institute of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life to look over the monks. Uh, you know he was the he had Saint Isidore first. Yeah, yes. he died April fourth, sixteen thirty six, after serving more than thirty two years as Archbishop. So Amazing. there you go. All right, Zach. Any last words? I don't think so. Um, you know, this is fun, and I, I made sure, since you know we're using a lot of what we're talking about comes from the book The Church Visible, which is a few years old, so I, I did make sure there have been some changes to the structure of the Vatican, but these congregations are all still in place. So, Fantastic. As of today. All right. All right, gang. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you all next week. See ya. See ya.